Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Ian Coley, the general manager for high performance computing at AWS. Thank you for taking your post-lunch break here with us. Um, we're here to talk about high performance computing in the cloud and what that looks like in AWS. On Monday, I don't know about you, but I was extremely excited to see the successful landing of the Mars lander in sight. This was the culmination of several years of hard work and effort by people across many areas of aerospace. In fact, they originally missed the launch window in 2016 due to some problems with sensors. And there were times where that project looked um, pretty bleak, but they persevered, and now we're starting to see some of the benefits of that science. When you think about these hard problems, this hard science, why do we do these things? Why do we push ourselves to the edge? And when I think about that, the first thing that comes to mind is John F. Kennedy's quote from his speech on why we go to the moon. At Rice University in September of 1962, you can Google it, pull it up on YouTube. It's pretty inspiring even to this day. When he's talking about why we choose to go to the moon, he says, we choose to do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we're unwilling to postpone. Now to me, that is the heart of high-performance computing. We are choosing to go after the hard problems. We are choosing them solely because they're hard. And by applying some of the most complex computational resources against them, we can have insights that otherwise were unthinkable. So we can debate about what is the definition of true HPC, but for me, that's what it is pushing the boundaries of science and engineering and research by applying complex computation to them. What does that look like for users of HPC on AWS? Here are some real numbers from our customers that I think demonstrate how we've got a few examples of successful implementations that have made real changes in the world. First is Bristol's Meyer Squibb. They're doing some computational intensive clinical trial computations. Before they do the clinical trials themselves, they want to simulate that. And previously, it would take them up to 60 hours to do those calculations. By moving to AWS, they were able to bring those calculations down to 1.2 hours. Not only that, but because of that improved cycle time, they were able to increase the efficiency of the clinical trial itself. So what did that allow them to do? That allowed them to improve the quality of life for those participants in the clinical trial for this pediatric cancer study. They were able to cut down the number of participants from 60 to 40. Each of those participants formerly had to have 12 blood draws taken during the study. They were able to pull that down to five and previously, each participant had to be hospitalized for 72 hours. 
And now they're able to bring that down to 26. Just think about the impact that's having. This is one study for those pediatric cancer patients. Additionally, we've got our customer, Arteris. They're involved in MRI scan rendering. The industry standard there is 90 minutes. But by, by moving their rendering to AWS, they were able to bring that down to 10 minutes or less, all while ensuring their platform maintained its HIPAA compliance. Next, we had Penn State University. They decided to move their research collaboration cloud onto AWS. What did that enable them to do? That enabled them to publish DNA synthetic results that were shared by 6,000 researchers who collaboratively created 50,000 synthetic DNA sequences, all using those best practices designed by those Penn State researchers. And finally, we have TLG Aerospace. We're performing complex computational fluid dynamics. And by moving their calculations to spot instances, they were able to reduce their costs by 75%, passing those cost savings on to their customers. As we look at those real life examples, you can see those are successes. But one of the keys to experimentation is the ability to fail. By definition, not all experiments succeed. But the goal of AWS is to ensure that we limit the blast radius of when an experiment fails, that we can experiment without exposing yourself to the full cost of that, as if you had to stand up a full hardware suite, experiment with it, and then tear it back down. By running on the cloud, you're able to experiment, tear down your, your cloud instances, only being billed for what you use, and then build it back up again when you're ready to try the next experiment. You don't have to worry about keeping that system fully utilized because you've made that capital intensive expense. Let's take a look at what this looks like when we compare the innovation that can be done with on-prem hardware versus innovation on the HPC AWS cloud. You look at a traditional procurement cycle, you gotta figure it out, do all the paperwork, do a tender, get resources. You can see that that can take, in some cases, several months, if not a year and a half. Now let's look at how that compares to the, the bottom line on AWS. Define your instance, spin it up, run your experiment, get the results, shut it down. Look at the number of times you can iterate through that bottom chart but before you get to the end of the top chart. Think of that increasing pace of innovation that that freedom allows you to have. Your ideas are not stuck waiting on a hardware procurement. Your ideas are not stuck in a queue waiting for resources. You are free as an engineer, as an analyst, as a researcher, to experiment and to try your idea right now. And then look at the results. 
as I alluded to on the previous slide, when you're looking at a, a high-intensive CapEx expenditure, you've got a long timeline. Not only that, but as you're planning for that expenditure, you have to decide, where am I going to sacrifice? Where am I going to set that line as far as how many resources can I buy? Because I want to ensure that I can satisfy as much of customer demand for my internal customers as possible. But in many cases, I can't afford to buy at peak. And if I do, I risk letting resources sit underutilized. So it's always a compromise between making users wait in a queue until resources become available, or over-purchasing and having excess capacity, as well as having to deal with that upfront CapEx expenditure that is one time and is so intensive, as opposed to the variability of utility computing where you can spin up, spin down, only paying for what you use. Additionally, let's look at the technology. So as I'm, as I'm planning out that CapEx expenditure, I have to look at, OK, what is the latest and greatest that I have right now and hope that that gets me out for the next four to five years as I wait for that hardware to depreciate. Whereas by running on AWS, you get access to the latest and greatest Intel CPUs and NVIDIA GPUs, as well as FPGAs, various memory architectures, all with the latest technology that we're providing to you. And when new technology is released by our partners, you can be assured we'll have that out as well. But you don't have to make that capital commitment knowing that you're going to be obsolete within a year or two and hoping that you can get additional expenditures so that you can refresh a portion of your on-prem hardware. By running on AWS, you get access to that latest and greatest. Try your experiments. Try your engineering, shut it down, and then move on. So what are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk a little bit about what are some of the innovations that we made in our infrastructure, how we've made improvements so that high-performance computing activities can perform on AWS. But it's not just about the infrastructure. Because for me, it, it, what's most significant is not the improvements we made, but how are our customers benefiting from those? What is the real world challenges that they're now able to approach based upon those improvements? So you hear some customer case studies about how they're using AWS to perform their workloads. And then finally, we'll go a little bit more into kind of broader philosophy. How do we think about high-performance computing in the cloud, as far as democratizing that resource for users globally. So before we go into the improvements that we've made over this past year, I want to do a little review of what does HPC on AWS really look like. So you can see we've got what you would expect from most high-performance computing architectures, storage, networking, most importantly, compute at the core of it. So you get the latest and greatest EC2 instances. We'll go into those specifics. And then you've got the automa automation and orchestration. How do we help you as users configure and set up your cluster with things like AWS Parallel Cluster 
or if you want us to manage it with AWS Batch, our cloud-native batch scheduler. And then for remote visualization, we've got our AppStream 2.0 and nice DCV offerings. So what does the architecture look like on HPC on AWS? As you can see here, this is a little bit of a different drawing. And now given our announcement around AWS Outposts, you could think of that corporate data center box in the bottom right. That could be your existing on-prem hardware, or that could be an outpost system. It's migrating data via Direct Connect into HPC on AWS. Then you've got the full stack there from orchestration level, storage, networking, and then the visualization that I talked about previously. So with that, I'd like to now bring up Brian Barrett, principal engineer in the High Performance Computing Group at AWS, to talk to you a little bit about some of the significant improvements we've made in our infrastructure over this past year. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Uh, as Ian said, my name is Brian Barrett. I'm an engineer in our uh, AWS uh, group, or sorry, our HPC group in, in EC2. Um, and going to run through a couple of the uh, infrastructure pieces for uh, HPC-oriented infrastructure pieces that we've announced uh, over the last couple of months. Um, starting with one, <clears throat> excuse me, that we announced on Monday, uh, FSX, Amazon FSX for Lustre. Um, many of you are probably familiar with Lustre. Some of you are probably actively running Lustre in EC2 today. Uh, that's always worked. Uh, what changes with FSX for Luster is that we manage all of the uh, fiddly bits of setting up the file system. So you tell us I want so much capacity or I want so much bandwidth, and we build out the right metadata servers and uh, I.O. servers and all of that. Uh, the other uh, cool piece for, for many applications is that you can, when you're creating the file system, point, it, uh, point FSX for Luster at an S3 bucket that you use to initially populate the system, or the file system. So this is great for uh, application runs or ensembles of application runs where there's a large amount of data already in S3, but your application requires POSIX file system semantics. With FSX for Luster, uh, you create a file system, uh, point it at the S3 bucket, and you're off and running with your application. Uh, the next couple of pieces I'm going to talk about are EC2 instance types that we've launched this year. Uh, the first is uh, one called Z1D that is oriented mostly to towards those applications that require few cores, but really, really fast cores. So uh, this typically ends up being license-limited uh, applications. EDA workloads are a great example here where uh, you can't use multiple instances for licensing reasons or, or code reasons, and a really, really fast CPU helps. Uh, these are four gigahertz uh, sustained turbo, um, again, using Skylake Intel processors, uh, 385 gigs of memory, uh, 25 gig networking, and a local NVMe disk. More recently, on Monday, we announced C5N, uh, a network-optimized variant of our existing C5 uh, platform. There's a couple of tweaks on C5. Uh, the first, in probably most visible to most users, is instead of 25 gig uh, networking, there's 100 gig networking. 
Uh, still uses the ENA network interface, still uses the existing ENA driver, although we did release a new version of the driver for slightly better performance, uh, better bandwidth, better packet rate, lower latencies, uh, and this all, we can do the, deliver all of this because we are now using our third generation of our Nitro card, which is part of our new Nitro hypervisor system. Uh, there are a couple of other changes we made, tweaks we made to the platform. C5 was our first Skylake platform. It used very early Skylake parts. And uh, it turns out there were some things that architecturally we can now do to make the, the memory subsystem run faster. So uh, code, fluid dynamics codes, ANSYS Fluent, uh, uh, star CCM, those type of codes, uh, should see better single node performance on C5N than they did on C5. Uh, next is P3DN, which is coming soon. We've announced it, haven't released it, uh, which is a refresh of our P3, which is our GPGPU optimized uh, platform. So it still uses the uh, NVIDIA Volta V100 cards, except instead of 16 gigs of memory, it's 32 gigs of memory per card. So we increase the memory on the card. And then most of the changes, though, are actually in the host side. Uh, P3 was one of our last Broadwell processor uh, systems, and so we've, we've upgraded that to Skylake. It's now a uh, P3DN 24XL is the largest instance size because there's more cores, more, more Intel cores. Uh, it also, as the N implies, has 100 gig networking just like C5N. Uh, it has a local disk. Um, and so for your inferencing workloads, for your machine, work, machine learning workloads, uh, if, particularly if you can take advantage of multiple nodes using something like NVIDIA's Nickel package, uh, P3DN is likely to really accelerate your applications. And then to help improve application scalability for, for horizontally scalable applications, or what most HPC people just refer to as MPI applications, uh, we released a new networking adapter called the EFA, or Elastic Fabric Adapter. Uh, currently, like I said, we're targeting scientific and engineering applications. Those that use MPI uh, will expand workloads over time. But this is really about scaling application performance and making it easier to drive that 100 gigabit bandwidth that we're now providing. So with EFA, you don't have to go through the kernel stack. You're, you're in a user space MPI application is able to talk to uh, the network card directly. So you get low jitter, low latency, consistent performance. Uh, for applications that are already using MPI, uh, you may have to, depending on what version of MPI you're using, you may have to relink your application against a new version of your MPI. But that's the extent of the changes you have to make. Uh, everything happens under the covers. And, and you'll see improved scalability and improved performance. Um, and then finally, in the cluster management or the infrastructure side, there's, there's two changes that I'm really excited about. Uh, first is some of you are probably using CFN Cluster, which is a toolkit that's, uh, that, that Amazon developed an open source toolkit to build uh, an environment in, in EC2 or in AWS that looks a lot like an on-prem data center cluster. So you have a login node, you have an NFS file system, you have a batch scheduler like Slurm or SGE. 
Uh, so it really feels familiar to, to people who have been working in the HPC environment for, for a, a long time. And uh, like I said, this had been an existing package that we had published as part of our AWS Labs um, open source initiative, which is places that people who, engineers who have an itch to scratch can, that, that helps our customers are able to publish that code. It's usually not super well supported, not nearly in the way that, say, EC2 is, right? It's, it's itch to scratch kind of code. And it turned out that there was a real itch there, and customers really liked it. And so uh, we actually built an engineering team around supporting and adding features to the product. And as part of that, decided it was really time to rename it uh, to, to highlight that it is now a supported AWS product. So it's now called AWS Parallel Cluster. It has all the same features as CFN Cluster always has. Um, the upgrade path is the same as it always has been with CFN Cluster. Uh, one of the first features that we added was the ability to integrate with AWS Batch. Um, and I'll talk about features we've added in AWS Batch that make this really cool. But the idea is you still create, you know, AWS Parallel Cluster, create a cluster, and we'll create a head node, we'll create a file system, uh, and instead of creating a bunch of compute nodes and configuring a batch scheduler, we'll instead configure uh, an AWS batch, batch queue for you. Uh, and there's some wrapper scripts on your, in your master nodes that you know, queue sub works the way you expect, and, and you're off and running, and instead of having to worry about, you know, am I managing my compute environment and is it scaling up and down properly, uh, you hand off all that undifferentiated lifting to AWS, and, and we manage all of that for you. And what makes this super cool is uh, an announcement we made two weeks ago that you can now support, you can now launch multi-node parallel jobs with AWS Batch. So what do we mean by multi-node parallel? Well, really we mean MPI jobs uh, for most people. So you can say, I need four uh, C4 8x larges to run this application, and we'll schedule it as, as one, one job. Uh, will scale up and down as appropriate. And like I said, we manage all the infrastructure, uh, still uses containers just like multi-node, or AWS Batch always has. Uh, if you don't like containers, we do have uh, a nice wrapper in AWS Parallel Cluster, so you never even see a container when you're running your MPI application. So that's kind of a quick summary of what we've launched. Like I said, there's super exciting features and that you're finally starting to see all the cool things we've been doing over the last uh, five years in, in AWS for HPC start to meld together and start to fit together in one cohesive piece. Uh, and the next couple of years of us continuing to build that will be super exciting. So with that, I'm going to kick it back to Ian. Thanks, Brian. As I said earlier, while we're extremely excited about all the hard work and effort that our teams have put into these infrastructure improvements, the real value is how our customers use them. How do our customers benefit from the resources of HPC on AWS? And so that's why I'd like to start out by inviting up Ken Robbins, Executive Director of Engineering at Novartis, and he's gonna tell you about how they've implemented uh, some of their workloads on AWS. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ian. I'd like to tell you a story about one of our data scientists. His name's Brent. He's a brilliant data scientist. 
He's really friendly, he's passionate about his science, and he's quite prolific. When I speak with him, two things come to mind. Well, first, I desperately wish I could keep up with him. After I get over the futility of that, I realize that the best way to enable scientific breakthroughs is to remove all friction and allow him to operate at the speed of thought. I think about this in much of the same way as a surgical nurse ensures that a trauma surgeon has the right tool at the right time. The surgeon opens up her hand and smack, the right instrument's just there. A year ago, July, Grant is watching the literature, and he sees an important genomic data set is released by the UK Biobank. Then in August, the Neil lab takes that data, releases a processed version of it that associates genes with their observed traits. Then by October 15th, the MLAB takes the NIL results, they join that to a different data set, further focusing the effects of genes to the, the association of genes to their effects. They now deposit this information publicly to S3. Brandt sees this, he's watching the literature, and sees an opportunity with this data. He now imports that data using our tooling into our data lake solution in one day. He then kicks off a Spark job running on EC2 directly from his notebook environment. And then two days and five billion QC runs later, preliminary analysis is complete. A day after that, he releases a notebook application to make other informaticians have the ability to browse that same data set. Then by October 25th, Brandt and the other informaticians have been able to identify gene targets for over a dozen different diseases, and they turn these over to the scientists working on each of those diseases, giving them a specific and actionable biological cause that they can now target with innovative therapies. The entire elapsed time to do this process for Brandt was just nine days. So he kept his eyes down on his data, and he reached out his hand, and we slapped the right data analysis tooling into his hand just when he needed it. So we're talking about HPC today, but let me take a quick step back to tell you a little bit about the purpose of NIBR, Navaris Research, and our engineering's role, and why we even care about technology at all in this business. Well, for us, it's patience. NIBR's purpose is to improve and extend the lives of patients by discovering new therapies. And we do this in about a dozen different disease areas. So we're a patient-first organization, not technology. We need to bring the best tools available to solve whatever problems may come our way. Personally, I have multiple loved ones, friends, colleagues, that all have had unmet medical needs. So I feel a deep personal urgency to do my part to help accelerate the science and enable our scientists. And this is the same mission as engineering, my group, as well as the other IT and informatics organizations within NIBR. So engineering's mission is to accelerate drug discovery by enabling our scientist partners so that they can make these important breakthroughs that are desperately needed. And just to define, when we say engineering, that means um, software development, HPC, cloud, data engineering, DevOps, and user experience. So that's our world.
To solve problems, which we have many, we need to use the right tool for the job. And we found it's important to establish a mindset as well as a broad set of capabilities to ensure that we have a selection of tools and capabilities so that we're prepared for the future and whatever the science brings to us so we can give them the same frictionless access as Brandt had. One way we do this is to ensure that we have a repertoire of available environments. That includes on-prem HPC, Amazon Cloud, and even other cloud providers when there's a significant enough differentiation. Because each of these environments has unique attributes that make them more or less well-suited for any given set of requirements. And then within each environment, it brings along its own set of capabilities and tools, further expanding our palette. Since no one size fits all, it's important for us to have a selection and a choice of tools. Otherwise, it's very easy to fall into the trap of you have that one hammer and everything looks like a nail. To help avoid that problem, we've taken a strategic approach to drive us to deliberately steer to have this diversity of tool capabilities. Here you can see just a bit of a deeper dive to our context. You can see uh, the resources that we have available. We have a fairly significant on-prem HPC footprint. And the, the uh, attributes here that make them unique is that we have the proximity to our high data volume producing scientific instruments, as well as the high-speed interconnect for our MPI-based cluster jobs. Of course, now that we see all these announcements, those differentiators are actually vanishing pretty quickly. We embrace a hybrid environment, so we also have everything that Amazon has to offer. And it's all the, we use Batch and uh, EMR and H2, S3. And the unique advantage here is the absolute scale. But more importantly is the elastic scale. The ability to go up and then come back down on demand is enormously powerful. It can't be underestimated. And of course, science is changing so fast, agility is another extreme differentiator for being able to have the cloud as part of our repertoire. Here's an overly simplified cartoon to depict the main elements of the drug discovery process to show the wide variety of different types of problems that we have to solve. Biology is insanely complex, and it can't be directly modeled like, let's say, physics. Instead, we have to run millions of experiments so we can generate the data to gather the insights to make then further decisions and discoveries. So data is behind absolutely everything that we do, and it's different at each one of these vertical phases. It's different in volume and shape and type, and we have to integrate across these different uh, types of data as well, horizontally. So it's this volume and this variety that drives us to have a matching variety of tools to handle the different kinds of problems that will come our way. So now let's look at a few different use cases of some things that we've done in the cloud. I mentioned we need to run millions of experiments. Well, one way that we do this is in the screening area. And what we do is we grow cells in a culture, we apply some sort of agent to them, and capture the results as images. There was a time when the best we could do was look at sort of aggregates of cells and then tell very simple features like, are they alive or not? Well, the current state is that we have high volume, high throughput instruments that can take pictures of these cells, and now we can look at individual cells, even individual organelles within the cells, and then with image processing calculate thousands 
of morphological features of each of those cells in their nucleus in other parts of the cell. That's an incredible diagnostic power. Being the tech nerd, I like to think about this as the same difference as it's nice to have a core dump file, you know something happened, much better to be able to look inside and get all that rich data to figure out what's going on. This is a classic, pleasingly parallel image processing problem. So here we applied AWS Batch to scale out very large on-demand jobs that we couldn't otherwise run on an internal cluster because it'd be an untenable sort of competition since we have other workloads there that just can't give up the cluster for days to run something. This next use case is one step downstream from the image processing. So now we have all these rich feature vectors. We need to run classifiers as well as some statistical and other machine learning methods in order to extract some insights to all this rich data that we've generated. So I'd like to take a moment to just appreciate the volume and the scale of just one of these experimental screens. A screen is run robotically, and we generate or work with maybe a dozen, maybe a few hundred, or up to a thousand of these special plates. So you can't see very well. But on here, there's 1,536 individual wells in a grid. And a well is like a pinhead-sized Petri dish. And inside each one of those teeny little pinhead-sized Petri dish wells, we have several thousand cells. So every one of these cells in this combinations is essentially a unique experiment. And as I just mentioned in the previous slide, we can generate a couple of thousand features and extract those from each of those cells. That's an awful lot of data to analyze and then to process. This one plate can generate up to 15 billion data points, and then we run a lot of these. So to support this, when we are only looking at the aggregate on-prem capability for at the well level, we had an on-prem capability that had uh, dedicated hardware maxed out. But then the science changed. It had some new needs. It had opportunities. And so we needed to move this to the cloud, because if you think about the, the well to the cell level, that's a million-fold increase in the amount of data. So here we applied uh, EMR as well as S3, and then Cassandra running on raw EC2. And an important feature here was the ability of EMR to scale up and scale back, because the size of each one of these screening experiments is widely varied, depending on the number of plates. And of course, the arrival of these jobs for us is also fairly sporadic. Niber has a, the virus has a quest to integrate all of our data and make it all machine learnable. So to support this, we've created a data lake environment that matches S3 with EC2 and Spark. From this, we can run ad hoc queries against all of this data that's in the data lake and run multiple parallel clusters depending on how, how many queries people are trying to do and how big they are. So this is the environment that we gave to Brandt to do his genomic association analysis. So we've seen a few different use cases. And in each one, we had different scientific demands that we're able to meet because we had a selection of capabilities, whether it was batch or EMR or S3 or just raw EC2. We're able to bring those all to bear so we're ready for the science when it had needs and we could continue to work in that frictionless way. I hinted to earlier that we think it's important to take a strategic approach to ensure that we have that diversity of tooling and that we're prepared for what may come at us. 
And it's important to do this because it really is very easy for us to slide into the being technology-driven or dogmatic or even just comfort with the tools you're most used to. By having a good strategy, it helps to keep us honest and drive us forward to continuously be ahead of the curve and be prepared in a rational sort of way. Here are the 10 principles that shape NIBRA's HPC strategy. I don't have time to go into all these in detail today, but I have instead posted the entire strategy out to a public blog, so if you want to look at that, it's at kenrobbins.link hpc. Your mileage may vary, but if you're building an HPC strategy or updating one for the cloud, then maybe there's some inspiration or pointers to steal. I will highlight a few of the aspects and these principles that are specifically related to the cloud uh, portion of the strategy. These top three are enablers to allow us to have that richness of choice of tool. That is to say, if you have portable jobs and you can have the choice of on-prem or cloud and you can choose which cloud depending on the requirements, then you have a rich set of choices and you don't feel you're stuck with that one hammer. That last principle down that's highlighted is the shared cost model. And that's important because when you're on-prem, you have a fixed capacity as a natural governor. But once we move to the cloud, fortunately, we have no such natural constraint. So to avoid running up uh, unbounded costs, someone's got to make some sort of decision. We found for, in our case, the way we work, we needed to move that decision into the hands of the scientists because they're the ones that know the scientific value. So we didn't want to have a split brain. We need to move those two things together. This graphic depicts our entire HP strategy in one picture and shows how the different principles interrelate. If you want to dig into this deeper, it's described also in that blog post at HPC, excuse me, kenrobbins.link slash HPC. So I've talked a lot about how it's important to use the right tool for the job. And in order to have the right tool, we have to have a selection of tools. It's equally important to have a structured and rational means to be able to choose what tool and decide how to do that mapping. You can see an example here of the top level of our decision matrix and the considerations that it uses to make some of those decisions, to help guide how we make these decisions with a little bit more of a deliberate manner. Science is really diverse, and it's changing constantly. Technology is constantly evolving. For us to best serve our patients, we need to enable our data scientists, like Brandt, with frictionless access to a diverse set of tools so that they can make the breakthroughs that will touch all of our lives. I'd like to thank all of my NIBRA collaborators, and thanks to all of you. Ian? Thanks, thanks Ken. I hope you were inspired as I was to hear that story about how they're using the resources on AWS to expand the horizons of their research. But it's not just area of biomedical research where people are taking advantage of HPC on AWS. I'm gonna walk through now some other industries where we've seen real life impact of running workloads on AWS. All right, who doesn't love koalas? Come on. They're adorable. But did you know, depending on estimates, there are 150 to 600,000 of them remaining 
And that's why they're considered quite endangered, but on the border. So one of the issues with figuring out how to treat them is that they did not have as complete a genomic sequence as they hoped for. And there is such genetic diversity between populations that they found in one area of the country, koalas were in one case extremely abundant, in fact, so much so that they were dying of starvation. But in another area, they were experiencing strange diseases and things that only occurred in that population set. So to further evaluate that, they ran a complex situation through AWS with a shared research model that was across 26 different research universities, nine different countries, and what they discovered was this complete sequencing of 3.24 billion pairs. And now they've got the data that they need that they can start looking at how do we specifically address the needs of each of these specific genetic populations. Whereas we think when we look at a koala, we see a, a koala, but just looking at that diversity and trying to think about how do we save that population, which could have completely different treatment outcomes in one area of the country and totally opposite in another part. Our next situation is from the financial services industry. Morningstar is a research publication entity for those looking to do independent research of commodities and, and financial instruments. And what Morningstar found is that as they were looking at their risk models, they didn't just want to create a new, better risk model. They wanted to find a way to iterate through risk models so quickly that they could create a risk model factory. And as you can see, by moving on their workloads onto the cloud, they were able to improve their cycle times by 4,000 times. Something that was inconceivable before, iterating through those different financial models, now enabled them to create that risk model factory to where they can increase the number of securities that they're managing by 50-fold. Next in aerospace, we see Boom Technologies. They're looking to bring back the commercialization of supersonic air flight. But in order to do that, you have to do many complex CFD jobs. In this case, what we're looking at is a simulated lift with over 200 million cells on 512 cores. Before moving to AWS, they were unable to paralyze their workloads. By moving to us, they were able to paralyze it 100 times. And not only that, but the workloads performed, each of those performed six times better. So end to end, they got a 600 times improvement in that workload. Then we moved to manufacturing. Or as I hope some of you have heard, we recently did a run of over a million cores. Now, where some may say, well, isn't that kind of a stunt to just run up over a million vCPUs? In this case, you can see we're doing real work. They were able to run over two million simulations. 
You ask yourself, why is Western Digital looking to do that many simulations? What are they trying to do? This is a perfect example of the concept of failing fast. What they're looking at is the various properties of various chemical combinations as they look at that spinning media, as they continue to try to pack it more densely so that they can fit more and more storage onto that three and a half inch form factor. How is that affected by the rotation? How is it affected by the, the light balance? All of those are things that they need to look at. And here we're able to cut three weeks of work down into a work day. Just, just think about that. If you, if you could take the cycle time of your team of what takes not quite a month and cut it down to a work day, how does that improve the speed of innovation? What kinds of things can you think about that previously seemed just inconceivable? So I ask each of you to think about what, what could you do with a million cores for your analysts, for your researchers, for your engineers? Right now, when you're looking in an on-prem hardware world, you've got to buy that box. And you've got to figure out, where am I going to fall on that? The one question you know is, I'm either going to overbuy or I'm going to underbuy. But no matter what, I'm always going to be wrong. I'm either going to have too many cores, and they're going to be sitting there idle, or I'm going to have not enough, and my workload's going to be sitting in a queue, delaying that innovation from occurring. With the flexibility and elasticity of HPC on AWS, you're able to spin up those cores. One of the things I didn't address in that previous slide is we can spin up a million cores in right around an hour now. This isn't something where it takes you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of staging and you hope that you get it set up right. You're able to spin up a million cores in a little over an hour, run your workloads, shut it back down only paying for that time that you're using. But it's not just about these large enterprise workloads where we think it's important. We really think about the excitement of HPC in the cloud as the true democratization of HPC. And as with all of AWS, that's something that we're not going to do alone. We're going to give the building blocks and the infrastructure and the improvement and then we're going to augment that with the rich set of offerings provided by our partner ecosystem. Now, many of you may have struggled through the uh, usability of MP3s in the early days and, uh, let's say, the questionable practices of Napster and other exchange services. But really, where music came alive in a digital format was when we had something that was easy to use. And that's where Spotify came in and made our lives to where we wanted to hear, about th hear things and we could just play it. We didn't have to do an LS on a directory and then pipe it to something else. And so HPC on AWS is no different. We've built those underlying building blocks of the architecture and the infrastructure itself, but we have partners like Rescale and Alsys and Ronin that have built those front ends onto that that give a little more usability for those customers that are concerned about, how is my budgeting? How do I ensure 
that my researchers don't go over their grant limit? How do I ensure that my scientists know the cost of what they're doing? Again, we are dependent upon our partners to build out the entirety of our ecosystem. As much as people are often enthusiastic and in some cases overwhelmed about the things that we announce between Sunday Night Madness and Werner's keynote on Thursday, believe it or not, there are a number of areas that we can't fill in. And that's where our partners are key to our success. As you can see there, our, whether it's technology partners like Intel, who are key to the success of our Z1D instance, that's a case where we had a customer use case where they came to us and said, we are doing complex EDA workloads that really re require a high clock speed CPU. Can you give us something like that? And so we brought that to market. Here you have partners like Rescale who have their portal into HPC on AWS for those customers that really aren't comfortable with running their own infrastructure and honestly don't want to think about it. One of the interesting aspects of operating in the cloud is just the availability of your data to collaborate with coworkers and researchers across the globe. As we're now living in this distributed area, era, where we could have teammates from Australia to China to India to France to the US. And now, with the collaboration that we enable by the underlying AWS infrastructure, once that data is up in the cloud, you can interact with it. It's not passing around things. It's not even shipping a hard drive from place to place. It's accessible almost instantaneously. One of the exciting examples about that we, that we saw recently was with NextFlow. NextFlow has created a workflow almost uh, built upon GitHub of a, a GitHub of genomic pipelining. If you look at that thing on the right side, it, it's as complex as it looks. <laughs> it's not easy. And they've made it, though, so they can collaborate with scientists across the globe. And all of this is built upon AWS Batch. Their scientists and researchers don't need to know that it's going on on top of AWS Batch. They need to know that they're using NextFlow. And they interact with that workflow engine. And the fact that it's built upon our AWS native cloud scheduler, that's part of the plumbing to them. So this is what's exciting about that collaboration, is that we are providing that capability for these scientists to have these DNA pipelines just execute with resources spinning up and spinning down, and they don't have to manage it. And what kind of an expanse do we have at AWS? As you've seen, we've, we've recently launched our second GovCloud region. So we're now up to 19 regions, 57 availability zones. 
But we've also pre-announced that coming over the next year and a half, we'll have additional regions from Sweden to Bahrain to Hong Kong to South Africa, and our most recent pre-announcement in Milan, Italy. So as you can see, we're not done expanding. We continue to fill in the map. We continue to expand the areas where our customers can utilize HPC and AWS. And here's that backbone that I alluded to earlier. Just look at the extent of that networking, undersea cables, transcontinental cables, connecting those resources. And by being part of the AWS ecosystem, you take advantage of all of that. In this case, we've got enough cabling that we could go from here to the moon and back twice. All of that connecting the resources that you're able to use. So why HPC on AWS? As I hope you've seen by the, the demonstrated fact, they were able to spin up a million vCPUs in right around an hour. We're giving you access to virtually unlimited capabilities. And you're only using what you pay for. I mean, you spin it up, you do your work, you shut it down. You're able to collaborate with coworkers and researchers globally. And you have the flexibility of the newest instance types, which we're going to continue to iterate on. As Brian showed you earlier, those are the things we've released just this year. We're going to continue to expand our offerings as new Intel processors come out, as new NVIDIA GPUs come out. We will continue to innovate in those offerings to ensure that you, our customers, have access to those latest and greatest resources. Finally, I hope you see the value in being able to perform at scale flexibly. We think that the key to HPC going forward is the elasticity and the performance. The elasticity that you get from AWS and the performance you'll get from the high-powered networking, the new high-performance file system, the lower latency offerings that we're providing and then you will go out and continue to innovate in engineering and in science and all the areas that are important to your users. Thank you. <laughs>